the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. I'm going to be working through verses 1 through 13, but I'll not read them right now, but we will get to them in a minute. In life, there are two sides to everything. This New Testament in my hand has two sides, this side and this side. A basketball has two sides. You say, well, a basketball doesn't have sides. Yes, it does. An inside and an outside. A quarrel has two sides. Every quarrel has two sides. The wife's side and the correct side. <laughs> so that in all of life, everything has two sides. And we um, operate and we live on the basis of um, adjusting to and and coming to mutual agreement when there are two sides. You go down tomorrow and buy you a television. There's the price that the uh, television man wants for his television, and there's the price you're willing to pay for it. And if you all can mutually agree on a price that you'll pay and he'll accept, then you, you buy that television because, you know, there are two sides. And when you decide, you, you know, you, you sign a contract. He gives you this contract and he's willing to give you the television on the basis that you have made an agreement that you're going to pay so much for it. So you all agree and you sign a contract and, and business is transacted. In marriage, one individual stands in an altar and he commits that he will forsake all others and cleave unto his wife, or she forsakes all others and forgets all others and joins to her husband. And it can't be one-sided, really. There, there's, you, know, you can't have a one-sided marriage. It's not enough that he's willing to love and honor and cherish his wife. That's not going to get it done. I mean, she's got to reciprocate that. And she, in turn, must be willing to love and honor and cherish him so that there is mutual consent and there are two sides and they both make a commitment. In spiritual matters, there are two sides. There is God's side and, there's my, and there is our side or my side. So that God offers His grace, but I must respond to this grace. There's no such thing as universal atonement. Grace is not irresistible. God's side is that He offers us His grace and man can either accept that or reject that, but man agrees to accept or respond to that grace. That's man's side. Now that leads us to, tonight to what I believe is the basic crisis in the Christian life, and it's this, that there is a terrible discrepancy between God's promise and our performance a terrible discrepancy between what God says I am and what I know that I am. There's a huge gap between what God has said I am and what I know myself to be, God's Word and my experience. God says that I'm an overcomer and I'm constantly being overcome. God says that I'm adequate for everything in life and I know I feel so inadequate. God says that I am holy, and yet I am in reality know myself to be so unholy. 
And I believe that the Christian life, the secret of the Christian life, is the ability to take shoe leather to those promises of God and bridge the gap between what I am positionally and what I ought to be experientially. Now I got this letter a couple of weeks ago or a few days ago. Starts out, Dear Dr. Tidwell, that got my attention right away. Dear Dr. Tidwell, I attended the evening service at First Baptist Church Durant on February the 18th. I just wanted to let you know how much the message on Romans 7 was appreciated and used by God. I've been studying the book of Romans with a friend, so it was good that I had the flavor of the book fresh on my mind. But I have recently, parenthesis, past couple of years, been struggling with my position in Christ. Two years ago, I was told that I was positionally in Christ, holy and blameless. My first reaction to the woman who told me that was, how blasphemous. Then she showed me where God had said it Himself in Ephesians 1, Hebrews 10, 14, 1 Corinthians 3, 17, etc. She has been discipling me it was so exciting to hear you, a new source, say again the truths that I have recently begun to believe about myself. God's love for me is not based on my performance. I'm not perfect, but that's okay because the life of Christ in me is. And that sanctification is becoming what I already am, the, the merging of my positional identity and my experiential behavior, God is so gracious. I don't know why it's been difficult, been more difficult for me to believe that those things than to believe that Jesus died in my place and rose again. Isn't that the truth? It's so much more difficult to believe this principle that I've been trying to teach than it is to believe that Jesus died and rose again. She said, but the Lord's loving kindness is, never ceases, he continues to reveal Himself to me and the way He sees me. I just wanted you to know how appropriate for me right now that message was. It's seldom heard probably because, as you said, it's likely to be misquoted. If you see that I have a misunderstanding, I would very much appreciate you letting me know. And then she signs with this verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. Now let me say again, I believe that the secret of the Christian life is the merging or the bridging of those two great truths, what we are positionally and what we are experientially. And the secret of the Christian life is becoming what we already are in Christ positionally. Now, there are two words that are keys that unlock this truth for us, and I want you to write those words down. The two words that unlock this great truth that, that we have such a hard time, you know, getting a hold of are these. Absolute and appropriate. Absolute and appropriate. Now everything God does, He does absolutely. 
God has made absolute provision for us. God has provided absolutely, completely, all that I need to be just like Jesus. God's provision is absolute. But I must appropriate that provision. So there's the second word. I must appropriate the absolute provision. God has provided everything, but I must appropriate it. I must, in order to make it benefit me or to enter into it, I must appropriate His absolute provision. Two key words. Now there are two illustrations of those two words. The first has, or found, the first illustration has to do with the initial encounter of, of the provision for salvation and it's found in the epistles of John and in the gospel of John. So the first illustration is this. Just write this verse of scripture down. 1 John 2.2. 2. 1 John 2.2 2 reads this way. He himself is the propitiation, the covering for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that the sins of every lost person have been paid for already? Every lost person? This is yes. Okay, some of you do. Look at, first, look at John 1.29. Just write that verse down. Well, John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Let me ask you a second question. Do you believe that Christ died for the sins of the whole world? Is there anybody anywhere that for which Christ has not already died? Then if He has made provision, propitiation, covering for everyone's sins and He is the Lamb of God for the, the sacrifice for the whole world, why? Hasn't the whole world been saved? Well, you know the answer to that as well as I do. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So the appropriation is that, uh, that we appropriate the provision of God's salvation for the whole world. Now, he did die for the sins of every man in the whole world, but our part is that we appropriate that by faith. He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Now the second illustration has to do with the spirit life, the, the victorious life, the full life. It's, the, it's, it's really the illustration Joshua. Now sometimes in your, you know, in your Bible reading, just turn over there to the book of Joshua and read there. It says... And God says to Joshua, and he represents all of God's people, he says, I've given you all of this land. God's promise is that the land of Canaan is yours from the beginning of it to the end of it, from one stretch, one inch of it to the last inch of it, God has given you as his people. Now we learned a long time ago here that Canaan doesn't represent heaven. Canaan, as we've already discussed here oftentimes, and you probably let it fly by you maybe, but so here it is again. In the Bible, Canaan represents the fullness of God's blessing, the full life. So when they stepped over into Canaan, it represents that, that, 
that analogy in the scripture is, Hebrews picks it up, it, it refers to the fullness of life that God has made possible for every Christian, for every believer. Now God said to, to Joshua, Canaan belongs to you. And then he goes to say this, he says this, that everywhere the sole of your foot touches is yours. Now it seems like a little bit of a inconsistency there. What God is saying is this, I have given you all of Canaan that you are willing to appropriate and the way you appropriate it is by putting your foot on it, so to speak. So the absolute provision is God's side and the appropriation of the provision is, is our side. Now what I'm driving at here, the thesis in this, the proposition is this, that God has made the provision for you to live in absolute victory and fullness, but it's ours to appropriate. And that appropriation is what I'm going to show how that happens is now. There are three things involved in this provision and appropriation. The first is a discovery. Now let's get the scripture here and let's take a look at it. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now the Apostle Paul made two discoveries. The first discovery he made, it's a very important discovery, and you will not be saved until you make this discovery. The first discovery he made was that a lost man cannot meet the demands of a holy God a lost man cannot meet the demands of a holy God. He can't keep the law. He may set out to do it. The apostle Paul said, I set out to keep the law and it just did me in. And I was doing pretty good and I was checking them off and I came to the sin of covetousness and I was convicted of the fact that I was covetous. I, as a lost man, found out that I cannot meet the demands of a holy God. Let me tell you, the moment you discover that, you're ready to be saved, not until. When you decide that the demands of God are too great for you as a, whole, as a, as a lost man, this demands of a holy God, then you're ready to understand that you've got to go look somewhere else, see, other than in yourself. He made a second discovery. This is the mind-boggling one. The second discovery that the Apostle Paul met was this, that it was just as impossible for a saved man to meet the demands of a holy God as it was for a lost man to do it. You get that? It's just as impossible for a saved man to meet the demands of a holy God as it was for a lost man to do that. Now listen to me, you'll never enter into victory in the Christian life, into fullness, until you make that discovery. And he gave an illustration. 
He said, the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. And we used the analogy last week of, of the law of gravity and the law of aerodynamics, that the law of aerodynamics enables the airplane to get uh, lift and fly. And I can just read your mind, because I've thought it a lot of times, well, my airplane had not got off the ground yet, because I've never been able to get above this sin. I've never been able to get over this, you see. Look at verse 4. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, those who walk after the Spirit. Let the Spirit regulate your life. That's my part, allowing the Spirit to regulate my life. Now, I want you to make this discovery tonight. I want you to look at verse 4, and you just tell me what you believe is the, is the key word in verse 4. Just say it to yourself. Wrong. Okay? Key word in verse 4 is not spirit. It's not walk. I want you to take a little pencil and do just like I did in my New Testament. I want you to circle the word in. That's the key word. Look at it. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled not by us, you see that? Not by us, but that the law, but the law, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. What? Say it with me. In us. It's locative of sphere, a sphere. It means that the place where the requirement of the law is accomplished, fulfilled, is not by us instrumentality, it's not the instrumentality, case of instrumentality, it's the case of locative, location. It's fulfilled in us. Now what Paul is saying is this, that you and I do not have it in us to meet the requirement of the demand of a holy God, but that's all right because God has placed in us a holy one and in us that requirement is met. So that as a person yields himself to the holy God who indwells him, then the requirement is met in the location of that man's life by Jesus Christ himself. Now, it's glorious. God has given me one to indwell me who can meet every demand that God makes and he is depending on the Christ in me to meet his requirement and not me to meet that requirement. Isn't that wonderful? You talk about liberation. Now here's what's going on. Salvation is God demanding and God providing, God demanding absolute righteousness and then providing absolute righteousness when we receive His Son. And the provision, the, the requirement of the life of fullness, the spirit life, is God demanding and then God providing. He's demanding absolute righteousness and providing that in the person of His Son. That's the discovery we have to make. All right, second word is the word decision. I want you to read with me verses 4 through 7. Let's read them again. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, 
For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Here it is. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Now you take a pencil now, that same pencil, and you circle the word subject. It's the idea of domination, dominion, control, domination. And what he's saying is this, that there when the discovery is made that a saved person cannot fulfill the demands of a holy God any more than a lost person can. He has to make a decision that he's going to allow the Holy Spirit of God to dominate his life. That is, he's going to subject himself to the Holy Spirit. Now, if you can't remember anything else but this, remember this that the Christian life as it ought to be lived is not lived by willpower. A few years ago, um, this book was hot as a pancake. I mean, it was the hottest thing on the market. It was called Any Steps by Charles Sheldon. Everybody graduating from high school got one of those and nobody read it. One day about 20 years after I got out of high school, I got one of those, I got that book out of my old library, dusted it off, blew off the dust and read it. The book is like this, that Charles Shelton said that, that every Christian needs to just see what Jesus would do in a situation and do that. Good, good book, great seller, terrible theology. The Christian life is not finding out how Jesus would do something in a situation and then have the willpower to do the same. Listen to me carefully. The Christian life is not lived by willpower. It's lived by a choice of your will, but not by the power of your will. You don't have the willpower to do it but you do have the choice of the will to allow the Holy Spirit to regulate and to dominate and to control your life. Now we think that we can get all this information and we can assimilate all this information and, 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 and just kind of uh, by osmosis live the Christian life. No, there must be a crisis decision like the one I talked about last Sunday morning. A crisis decision where I decide once and for all I'm going to let the Holy Spirit make the decision for me from now on. Now the key to that, of course, is an obedience to the Holy Spirit when He makes the decision. That comes to the final thought. Here's where the water hits the wheel. It's the word discipline. Let's read verses 8 through 13. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, 
the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, through the, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal, mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Now you need to go back and pick up ones we've already read, verses 4 through 7. Now, let me see if I can um, have your attention right here for about 10 minutes, 12, maybe 15. What we'd like to happen is that we'd like to have some great cataclysmic experience and God would just zap us. And all of a sudden, after that great, you know, balls of fire, and maybe, you know, seen on television these little butterflies or whatever they are float around, you know, fluttering around, and they got these little wands and they touch you, and you know, sparks fly and sparkles and. You know, you've seen that? We'd like to just come to church some night and, 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 and the Lord just kind of float around, you know, and just kind of touch everybody with a, with a wand and we just sparkle, glow. Everything after that just be great. Doesn't work that way. Now, initially, it's interesting that initially God does that way. You remember when God was going to take the people into the land of Canaan? And they came to Jericho, and all they had to do is just walk around the city and shout and beat on something and break some, some vessels, break some uh, vases, and the walls came tumbling down. I mean, nothing to it. Just boom, and the walls fell. It, didn't, it never happened that way again. Do you know what I'm saying? After that initial cataclysmic marvelous miracle of God. After that, they had to scratch and claw and fight for every inch they got. And it required discipline. Required discipline. Now you're going to say, you're saying to yourself, now wait a minute, the guy's backtracking on himself for a little. You just hang in here a minute. It demanded discipline. It's like a soapbox, you know, we start out with this push and God gives us this little push and we're going fine as long as we're going downhill. But once we start to get it uphill, there's no way to go from there. I mean, the initial little push won't take us uphill, you see. And there's got to be some kind of discipline involved. You know, when the priest brought the sacrifices and he put them on the altar, he tied them on the altar because when they set fire to the sacrifices as they burned they'd fall off the altar. So when the, when the cards were consumed, they had flesh hooks and they'd take, there were two flesh hooks, one on each side of the altar and they'd use those flesh hooks to pull that sacrifice back to the center of the altar. There are, these, there are times when we need some flesh hooks to get us back to the, to the, sacri the sacrifice back to the center of the altar. Uh, Stephen Alford calls those flesh hooks discipline and determination. Now, in this passage, he defines the discipline in two ways. It involves two things. Now, in verses 4 through 7, the discipline is this. The discipline is 
that you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Do you see that in verses 4 through 7? He says it several times. He says that the, the person who is living in the, in the energy of the flesh, he sets his mind on the flesh. But the person who lives the spirit life is, is a person who sets his mind on the spirit. How can I bridge, listen to me, how can I bridge this experience gap between what I am positionally and what I am experientially? Well, it requires the discipline, this discipline, to set your mind on the spirit. Let me tell you something. Where your mind is, your feet goes. I used to like to trade cars about every couple of years, whether I could afford it or not. It ain't making a difference. And I get what I call, my daddy used to call the bug. Now, the car buying bug, boy, when that bites you, man, you've had it. The, the fever, call it the fever. Man, he's got the, he's got the fever. And I, I'd get in my mind, you know, uh, I, I, I'd get in my mind, I want a new car. Couldn't afford it, couldn't pay for it, couldn't get it out of my mind. I'd think about it day and night. I'd pass by the dealerships and I'd check them out as I drove by, you know, and I'd find myself just pulling in there, you know, take them out for a test ride. True story. I, I couldn't get my mind off of it. And it didn't matter if I had the money or not, if... I thought about it long enough, and that usually took about two weeks. I'd find myself just kind of pulling in there, and before I knew it, I'd have me a car, new car. They'd show me a way to buy it. Six years, you know, nothing down, no payment for two months, all that. Now, when we're talking about setting your mind on the Spirit, he's talking about a preoccupation with the Spirit of God. Setting your mind on the Spirit. Now, I know this sounds repetitious, and it is, but you know, I found that when you start preaching the theology of the Apostle Paul, when you preach the theology that's in Colossians on the, on the, uh, the, the Apostle Paul, you're going to find it in other places too. It's hard not to be repetitious. And so this is somewhat repetitious. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind, so that when a person sets his mind on the Spirit, it isn't long until his feet start traveling in the path of the Spirit. See? Now everything's run by a computer now. I, uh, I was calling the other day from getting, some, getting a, uh, information. You, you ever don't say, you know, when you call and you get information, you get a recording. I don't know whether you do this or not, but after she gives a number, I just automatically say thank you. You know, I just, <laughs> you know, it's some recording. It's not even a person there, but it just, it just happens. I, I'll thank you. Now I realize, you know, how dumb that sounds. I'm thanking this recording. Everything's run on a computer. The problem with the computer is that it's at the mercy of the information it's been given. So that if it has been given inaccurate or inadequate information, that's what it puts out, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Now, if a person sets his mind on the spirit, 
the information that he receives is adequate and, and accurate. And the result of that is that what comes out of him, the action of his life will be what has been programmed into him by the Holy Spirit. Now, where do we get this programming? Well, you get it from, from here, you see. How are you going to get the information, the additional information to the, of the, to the mind of, the, of what the Spirit says if you don't read the Spirit's book? See? You remember Peter up on that housetop and he's this good Jew and he has this dream and he's uh, this uh, sheet been let down from heaven and he's told to eat all this unclean stuff. It's unclean ceremony to the Jews. And he said, no way am I going to eat that. Not so, Lord. And the Lord said, whatever I, you remember that, whatever I've cleansed, let no man say is unclean. And so he did. He got down from the top of the house and there were some guys waiting on him down there. And they said, we're a bunch of Gentiles and Cornelius, our uh, boss, is a God-fearing Gentile. He doesn't know how to be saved. Could you come to an old Peter saying, you wouldn't believe this. But I, I just came down, I just had a vision that it was all right to whatever God is... Where do you get that additional information that he hadn't had before? He got it from the Spirit of God himself. Now, what are you preoccupied with? I mean, when I was going to college, I, I worked all night and tried to go to school in the daytime. I had terrible responsibilities. Don't you feel sorry for me? Senior in college, had a baby. I'd sit there in class. You know, it's hard to concentrate on because I was preoccupied with what I had to do when I left there. I was a manager of a grocery store, night, night manager. Some of you can come to church and backslide. You know why? Because you're preoccupied by what's going on out there. Where you're going to go after, what's on TV, when's he going to quit, and all that good stuff. Now let me, sh let, me, let me get back to this. Here is the way we bridge the gap. Not by trying to come to church more. Not by getting any more conferences. Not by, you know, doubling our giving, going to visitation, all that's important. This is how you bridge the gap. It's by becoming preoccupied with the Holy Spirit. And when you set your mind on the Spirit of God, then as the Spirit of God begins to transform that mind, the result is your feet start traveling in the way of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? I guess it doesn't. Second discipline. The first is to set your mind. The second one, now catch this, get this please. Circle verse 13 says, For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if, circle the word by, but if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now the difference here is, that we try to put to death the deeds of the body and that's the work of the Spirit, not us. Let me see if I can give you an illustration and we'll quit. There's a courtroom here. And, and if we operate, if we, if we have this court 
operate on the basis of how we view the Christian life. I'm having a hard time getting this, how to make this work. I've thought about it all afternoon. But the normal way we operate the Christian life is that God is a judge and we're the defendant. And God judges our life and He says, okay, I don't like that and I don't like that and I don't like that. He puts His finger on this and He puts His finger on that. And we're the defendant. We're found guilty. And so then God says that you, if we're, this is the way we look at it. We also must be the executioner. So that we have to, we become not only, we're not only the defendant, but we're the executioner who has to execute the same, our own, ourselves, you know, commit suicide, so to speak. This is what the scripture, are you with me? Here's how the scripture has it. Watch this. God is the prosecuting attorney. The flesh, that is, the human effort is the defendant, and we are the judge. And God, the prosecuting attorney, points out the deeds of the flesh and we're the judge and we judge, yes, that's right. He's right, that is a deed of the flesh. And we as the judge must pronounce the sentence of death to the deeds of the flesh, but we don't have to execute. The Holy Spirit is the executioner and the Holy Spirit will will put to death every deed of the flesh that you tell him to, that you permit him to. Now the reason why he doesn't put to death the deeds of the flesh is that he knows we don't want him to. Let me tell you something. Every deed of the flesh that you will submit to the execution of the Holy Spirit, he'll put to death. And when he puts to death the first one, he'll remind you of the second one. And I suppose that the person that I have come to believe and understand and, and admire and love is the, as a person who is living the Spirit-filled life, if I've ever seen it lived, was a professor of mine at the seminary by the name of Jack McGorman. And this is his testimony that he got in the hospital and Jerry was talking to us tonight about how the fact that God permits those things to come from him to our life that drives us to God and in this hospital. He just said, God, I'm ready. If you will expose to me those deeds of the flesh that are not of the Spirit, I'll give them to you to put to death. And he said, God started to work on him. And as soon as he'd, as soon as he'd give God permission to do one, he'd, put it, he'd give another. He'd show him another one. And finally he, saw, he said, he told the nurses, would you take this television out of my room? I got business here with God. I don't need a television. He said, take all these magazines, newspapers. And he, he told his wife, he said, honey, I love you. Don't come to visit me. Don't let anybody. Put a sign on my door. He put a sign on his door, no visitors. And for about four days in the hospital, every time God would bring up, he'd allow God to put it to death. He began to write letters to people. He called people on the telephone. I heard him speak in chapel after he got out of the hospital, his first sermon in chapel, true story. He's up there talking about this experience, turned around and apologized to the president of the seminary. That'll bless you. He said, Dr. Naylor, I need to ask your forgiveness. I've been impatient with you. 
He said, I've not acted like a gentleman Christian in this, on this campus because of some things that I thought you were doing that I didn't agree with. I want you to forgive me. And every one of those things that he permitted God to put to death in the Holy Spirit, he put to death. Now that's consenting to your death. And that's the discipline. Setting your mind on the Spirit and allowing the Holy Spirit to be the executioner. And that exe that's what being crucified with Christ means. Crucifixion is the most painful prolonged, and I will spit on the front row if I give, it's the most painful and prolonged death there is. It's true. I don't know where you stop a sermon like this. You hear what I'm saying? There are two sides. There's God's side, and there's your side and mine. Let's pray. Father, I ask you now, there's anything unclear, unsaid, undone, make absolute provision. And help us to appropriate in Jesus' name.